better to lose a tooth than to be the kind of person that punches people when they don't deserve it, because that's somebody who's a coward. That's somebody who doesn't understand justice. And so what Socrates is doing there is he's placing, he's placing character as the most important thing in the hierarchy of our life and the hierarchy of what makes a good life. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And today we're going to be talking about Socrates and Stoicism. In particular, we'll be discussing how and why Socrates was seen as a Stoic model, a Stoic role model, and the most important role models for, for the Stoics. Yeah, we did an earlier episode, episode number 47 was on the Socratic method. And that was our most popular episode this year. There was a lot of interest in Socrates. So following up on that with a wider scale discussion of, of Socrates' philosophy. So if that was on one particular technique, the Socratic method, this is on uh, Socrates' philosophy more generally, particularly how it influenced or relates to the Stoics, because there's, there's quite a strong influence there, a kind of proto-Stoicism, early Stoicism in Socrates. Um, he's certainly more like a Stoic than Plato, Aristotle, or the other ancient philosophers before the Stoics, with the exception of, of, of maybe the, the Cynics. Um, so I'm going to try to today um, discuss those key similarities, uh, at the same time nailing down what philo uh, Socrates' actually ph actual philosophy was, because there's always a bit of ambiguity there, because what we know about Socrates is from the writing of others, but try to get down to what his philosophy was, what the similarities with Stoicism is. Going to go then into some key differences as well. You know, we, we, I just called Socrates uh, having some early Stoicism or kind of proto-Stoicism, but he's not the same. They're not the same. They don't believe the same things. So what are some of the key differences there? And then follow up, uh, finish up, as we usually do with some reflections and questions. I should note for those listening that a lot of, a lot of my understanding of Socrates comes from Gregor, Gregory Vlastos's book, Socrates, Ironist and Moral Philosopher. Gregory Vlastos is an excellent ancient philosophy academic. Um, and I think this is the best academic book I've found in, on the philosophy of Socrates as distinct from Plato. So once again, that, that's, that's Gregory Vlastos's Socrates, ironist and moral philosopher, and that's inspired a lot of what we'll talk about today. Anything you want to add, Kiel, before we jump into it? Well, just in terms of Socrates, uh, the importance of Socrates to the Stoics, one of the stories about Zeno of Citium, the founder of Stoicism, is that after his ship was wrecked. He was wandering around, stumbled into a bookstore and found Xenophon's Memorabilia, which is an account of some of Socrates' most important dialogues as captured by Xenophon. And that was what called him to study philosophy more, in particular with this bent on philosophy as a way of life, as it was practiced then. I think you are immediately struck, especially with Xenophon's memorabilia, this and the early Socrates, this focus of Socrates on you know fundamental questions about what is the good life, but also seeing that in practice through who Socrates was. Yeah, so we have that direct connection. So a lot of these similarities won't be by accident. There, there is 
a direct connection between the founding of Stoicism, or at least um, Zeno's call to philosophy and Socrates through the writing of Xenophon. Um, starting with a quick introduction, I, I, we provide some biographical uh, information on Socrates in episode 47 on the Socratic method, but I'll touch on some of that again, just as a quick refresher and context, um, or at least some, some historical information. So Socrates was the teacher of Plato and Xenophon, as we just mentioned, um, often credited, I would say, as, I mean, if not kicking off Western philosophy, I think as you put it, maybe kicking off Western philosophy as, as a philosophy as a way of life, I would certainly feel comfortable saying that. I would say contemporary philosophy as a way of life, at least in the Western tradition, starts with Socrates, um, at least in terms of, of what we have left and haven't lost to time. Um, and when we talk about Socrates, we're always kind of playing this game uh, of interpretation because he didn't leave any of his own writings. We have his writings from his students, Plato and Xenophon, Xenophon's memorabilia, as you mentioned, and then uh, Plato's Socratic dialogues, uh, which feature Socrates as a main character. And one thing there is there's there, Plato usually talk about an early, middle, and late period, and there's generally a consensus in contemporary research that you get a lot of Socrates represented accurately in early Plato, middle Plato, some of Socrates, some of Plato's stuff, late Plato, Socrates is just a character, a mouthpiece for Plato, even though he features in all of these dialogues. So we really focus on early Plato to pull out Socrates' personality. I would say in terms of the relationship with Stoicism, he's also seen as the original sage for the Stoics. Or maybe, if not the original sage, I would say the most often referenced sage, the one that's agreed upon uh, as a sage. Um, he's the most referenced person in Epictetus's discourses. Uh, so what a major source of inspiration for Epictetus in that sense. And I like to take a step and, and think, you know, you mentioned that story about Zeno reading Xenophon's memorabilia and being inspired. And I, I like to just take a moment to draw a connection because often we look up to the, the Stoics we admire them or see them as different than us, but you can also see them like us, people trying to learn, people studying philosophy as a way of life. And if you think of the Stoics like us, then the way we look up to Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca, they were looking up to Socrates. This was someone who lived hundreds of years before, not thousands, but hundreds, who had their life written about. And you would go and you would read representations of their life or their thought, and you'd be inspired, turned towards philosophy as a way of life. So the way we read Marcus Aurelius' meditations, the Stoics would read Xenophon's memorabilia, as you mentioned. And there's a there's a there's kind of a one generation removed there connection that I love. Um, and to put that in perspective, he lived around a hundred years before Zeno and four hundred years before Epictetus and Marcus. And so, let's kick things off with some similarities. So, where, what does Socrates think, and how is that connected to Stoicism? Um, I would say, before we jump into these, the, the golden thread that ties all of these similarities together, I think is going to be a focus on knowledge and a focus on disciplined thinking as transforming action and behavior. I think that is what the, the thread that connects Stoicism and uh, Socrates is this idea that we want to be virtuous and good, but the way to do that is through achieving knowledge and disciplined thinking. So Socrates is always we're going to see in in, in a moment, but always looking at the uh, refining the thinking of people, getting them to live an examined life, 
getting them to think carefully about what they're committed to, and then uh, drawing out the implications of how those beliefs, how those ways of thinking influence their actions. So you, 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 know, you are what you think to, the Soc- to Socrates and the Stoics, and that's where a lot of these strongest connections come about. Um, so the first similarity I wanted to mention between Socrates and the Stoics is philosophy as a way of life. And more importantly, as a way of a part of everyday life. So I think that Socrates pulled philosophy out of the esoteric and brought it to the day-to-day. He brought it to the marketplace. When we, when we talk about the Stoics, Stoics name comes from Stoa. It's not the mobile app. Sorry, we weren't talking about the mobile yeah. app. <laughs> the, uh, the Stoics named themselves after us. They looked into the future and they go, these guys got it figured out. Um, little time paradox there. But this, but, but Stoa is the it's the it's the porch, the colonnade that the Stoics would uh, discuss philosophy at. And what's important about that metaphor, I think, is that that's a public endeavor, right? It wasn't the academy, it wasn't behind closed doors. It was public. It was by the marketplace. And what Socrates did was I, I initiated that way of thinking by going out and you know he's very famous for going out and pestering people, asking them questions, engaging them in philosophy, asking them these ideas about can you define justice can you define the good can you define piety but then grounding that in that how that affects their lives how that affects the actions that they take um and i think a good example of that is the euthyphro so in in one dialogue platonic dialogue socrates meets the character of euthyphro uh and euthyphro believes that his father did something impious his father disrespected the gods and his going to testify against him in court or get him get him illegally implicated for this. And Socrates says, wow, you know, you must really understand the nature of piety if you're going to, you know, put your father at risk like this. Maybe you can explain what it means to be pious. Maybe you can explain what it means to honor the gods. Cool. Um, and they engage in this Socratic dialogue. They talk about the nature of piety, but it, it, it's grounded in, you know, this, this, because he believes, uh, you know, X or so-and-so is, is to respect the gods and so-and-so is to disrespect them, because Euthyphro believes this, that's, that's changing the way he's, he's dealing with his family. That's changed the way that he's dealing with his personal life. His belief about this seemingly abstract esoteric concept, this religious concept, is bleeding into his everyday life and his actions and his ethics. Mm-hmm. And Socrates, so then Socrates is, is making such a strong connection between those two. So it's not this abstract conversation about what it means to be pious. It's a conversation about what it means to be pious grounded in the implications that has for our behavior. And another way about how the, another way that Socrates grounded philosophy as a way of life in the, in the everyday is he, he really took people's intuitions to be a valuable starting place for philosophy. So non-philosophers can do Socratic philosophy, which is this conversation about your beliefs, this conversation about your intuitions, and you know, why do you think the things you do? Why do you believe the things you believe? The Socratic method that we discussed earlier. Um, children can do Socratic philosophy. If you ever teach kids, you know, they're, they're famous for asking you why a bunch of times. They're just doing Socratic philosophy. So there's this kind of childlike joy, wonder, curiosity in Socrates' philosophy. It's not something reserved for the, you know, the people at the top of the ivory tower. It's the thing you can do with your parents, your friends. It's the thing you can do at the pub when you're debating. It's the thing you can do with a five-year-old when they want to know, you know, what happens to people when they die. It's the, this kind of gra- way of grounding philosophy. And 
that's obviously in the Stoics as well. But I, I think that's something that Socrates was really the, the first person to do in, in the Western tradition. Yeah, I suppose like part of what you see is this focus on practical, ordinary questions of day-to-day living matters that Socrates was facing uh, or that his fellow citizens were facing and then thinking about those in a philosophical fashion. So it's both you know, taking philosophy to practice and then also concerning yourself with uh, practice as a, as a matter of philosophy, not concerning yourself merely with more abstract questions. And you can see that in dialogues where Socrates is discussing whether he should escape imprisonment. You know, is that a just thing to do after his trial? Or you can even see how you know, he brings philosophy into ordinary life in you know, dialogues like the symposium, where it's essentially a dinner party where all the guests are mm-hmm. discussing about the, the nature of love. So I think you know, there, there's sort of both, both of those aspects of philosophy as a way of life, almost, you know, a way of being where you are concerned with day-to-day life, you know, what does the good life look like? And then also bringing some of these tools, this thinking style, these fundamental questions to bear. Um, and, and these are matters that were perhaps normally just decided by tradition. You know, what's a good life is determined by tradition religious beliefs, what have you, but then you have Socrates, you know, fundamentally asking questions like, you know, what does piety consist in? What does justice consist in? What's the nature of the good? Can virtue be taught? And so on. Yeah, I think that was really well put, Caleb, this idea of this connection between, I think you said, like, bringing these concepts to bear on action, but then bringing the actions back, but then thinking about your actions philosophically as well. So going both directions, right? If you're being reflective, well, what's the practical part of that? You know, if, if, if we're reflecting on justice, but no, this is going to inform whether I break out of jail or not, or whether I accept my punishment. Okay, we're, you, you, you're, you're acting on your view of what's just or what's pious. Okay, let's, let's pull that out a second. So this constant willingness, I guess, to, 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 to transition between both playing fields, right? The high and the low, the grounded and the philosophical, the practical, um, I guess, in the abstract. That's really cool. It's really impressive, and I think it's it's difficult for most people, and it's unintuitive, and it's something Socrates nailed, and something that really attracts me to Stoicism. Absolutely, absolutely. Next similarity I want to do is the Socratic method. So that's something that the Stoics, and if you start to look for it, you'll see it in the Stoics, that they um, inherited directly from Socrates. It's called the Socratic method for a reason. This is used in the Stoics as an educational tool, but also as a personal practice for improving your thinking, identifying contradictions, and refining your beliefs when you identify those contradictions. Uh, we have our full episode on this, but if you want more detail, but at a high level, the Socratic method is just about defining a term. You know, I think justice is this, searching for a contradiction between that definition and another belief. Uh, well, if justice is this, then then that means that my action that I did was unjust, but I don't think it's unjust, so there's some sort of contradiction here. And then changing the definition or the other belief. Often you're changing the definition, sometimes you reject the other belief. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was thinking of an example where I think, well, sometimes if I procrastinate, I go, well, I'm a, I'm a lazy person, let's say. And then 
I might think, well, what do I actually think a lazy person is? Well, I don't think it's somebody who struggles to complete things sometimes. That's way too broad of a definition. And then I think, well, so then my one example of procrastination doesn't make me a lazy person. And I kind of was using Socratic thinking to get myself out of this like negative self-talk, but it's an example of how you can be disciplined in your thinking, right? Defining your terms, searching for contradictions, and accepting contradictions that you have to reject either the belief or the definition. The Stoics use this all the time, especially Epictetus, but they use this as an educational tool because if you bring someone to realize an apparent contradiction, it makes the lesson stick a lot stronger than if you just tell them what it is, right? So if you tell them, you know, if they say, well, money is a good thing, that's what somebody might say. And you say, well, uh, do you agree that, you know, if you, have, if you have good things, it makes you happier? Yes. Well, do people with more money become happier? No. Okay, well, there's a contradiction there, right? And then the person says, well, that's a good point. I guess, uh, I guess money isn't a good thing. Or I guess I need to think more about what it means for something to be good. And that's an example of a kind of Socratic education process the Stoics will do. And when you do that with somebody, it just makes, the, it, just makes it stick so much more. They're participating, right? Their mind is playing the game with you and they're going to remember and they're going to be motivated by what, by what conclusions they came to in such a stronger way than if you just told them, oh, the Stoic definition of good means that virtue, uh, money is indifferent. And then you just end at that. No, you, you, you want to participate with people. And that's part of why we encourage, I think, meditation and self-reflection, mindfulness, to do this kind of process in yourself. Anyway, it's a great, it's a great process. Mm. And my point is that, you know, this is what the, Socrates came up with, but the Stoics latched on to say, hey, there's something great here. And they, they, they've, they kept it going as a practice. Mm. Yeah. I think a great example of this is Apertitus in the Discourses talking to the father who fled his family, fled his ill daughter, uh, because uh that was he, he he says that's what would be best for her and epictetus says well do you you know do you usually leave people who are sick and then it essentially just follows up with a battery of questions that shows that he hasn't thought through his position or perhaps is motivated by by something else um socrates called himself the midwife of ideas which this thought was that he doesn't his role wasn't to tell people explicitly what to think he's you know somewhat coy about you know what's the nature of knowledge some of these fundamental socratic beliefs but instead was to help others think through the implications of their views and by doing so come to better ideas in that way, he's a good role model for dialogue where you're, if, when you're in that Socratic position, you're not thinking about just trying to install whatever beliefs you think into the other person's head, but drawing out whatever might be of use to them, to you, in a, you know, a, uh, a truly attentive and uh, serious, but also rather, rather playful, playful way. Yeah, I mean, that's such a lovely metaphor um, because, I don't know, birth is kind of difficult, but, I mean, not kind of difficult, very, very difficult. <laughs> I wouldn't want to downplay that, but, you know, a worthwhile process, right? Like something something beautiful. Um, and so, 
yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I would want Socrates as my my midwife, but maybe I would as the midwife of ideas, and I'd be grateful afterwards for someone to help me through the process. It's painful, violent in some cases, but uh, you're left with something great, right? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. That it also does get at that point, I suppose, that thinking through things uh, in a serious way is often not that pleasant. That's why the Stoics say you know, should think of think of philosophy as a hospital. It's cer- certainly not always a pleasant, comfortable ordeal to you know, revise some of these fundamental beliefs, fix vices, root out whatever you're trying to root out. That takes a serious amount of work and discomfort. And seeking things, wanting things to be otherwise, is just another way to to postpone that that project, I suppose. So that that you know that that Socratic method, either edu- educational tool, as a personal practice, it's midwifery of ideas. That's something that Socrates has come up with, or at least popularized, and that we see in the Stoics. So you're channeling Socrates whenever you're doing that. Uh, but moving on to similarity number three, that is virtue as knowledge or virtue as wisdom. Um, we often talk about this as a stoic argument and the maybe in some ways the key stoic argument that virtue uh, is wisdom or virtue is a kind of knowledge. So to be excellent as a person is what we mean here when we say virtue. So excellence comes from knowing how to act. And that actually comes from Socrates. That is a Socratic argument. Um, in the early Stoic, di- or the early Plato- Platonic dialogues, we get this argument from Socrates. And what we mean again by, by virtue as a kind of knowledge, I mean that thinking about bravery as the kind of knowledge of what to avoid and what to pursue. Temperance is the kind of knowledge of what to indulge in and when to stop. That's what we're talking about. So there is no excellence without an understanding of how to act and an understanding of of what to do. And if you have that understanding, you will act correctly. You will be an excellent person if you have that knowledge. We get that argument in Socrates. Um, In Plato's Euthydemus, uh, Socrates makes a very stoic argument. He basically argues that, look, we can talk about all these kinds of goods, wealth, pleasure, status. But if these are used by an evil person, they'll be used to do evil things. If they're used by a good person, they'll, they'll come out to, to do good things. So what makes them good or bad is not what they are, it's how they're used. And what determines how they're used? Well, they're, they're, that is our knowledge, our wisdom, our opinion about how to use them. And so he says the only thing that is good in and of itself is wisdom. Everything else, making a stoic argument here, everything else is indifferent. It's about how it's used. The only thing good in and of itself is wisdom. The only thing bad in and of itself is ignorance. And um, I think that even in the stoics' time, that was taken as such an innovative claim or such a controversial claim. So it's cool to see its grounding in Socrates, you know, literally hundreds of years earlier. We don't just see it there. It comes up in other parts of Plato as well. But that's a direct line from Socrates to the, Stoic, the Stoics, this argument that virtue is a kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want to think about some examples 
you brought up the example of courage. You know, well, in order to be courageous, you need to not be reckless or be a coward. And in order to do that, you need to know the difference between those things is the thought. You know, it's not brave to stand up for something that doesn't deserve it. Uh, it, It's not brave to ignore fears when caution is warranted. But sometimes, of course, people are too cautious or they don't stand up to things that they should. And so then the question is, you know, how do you know that difference? Well, that's where knowledge comes into the picture. It's what helps us know what, uh, what acts are brave, focusing. And that's, so that's that going to, you know, you, to extend that a little bit further, you might ask, you know, why are the Stoics always so focused on seeing things as they are? Because being able to do that is what points the way towards right action, right character. Yeah, I love that. Seeing things the way they are. And this connects back to Socrates' focus on, Socrates and the Stoics' focus on strong thinking, disciplined thinking. You know, using the Socratic method, connecting um, beliefs with action through the Socratic method and through this grounded philosophy, this movement we talked about earlier between the practical and the conceptual. The, that, that movement between the practical and the conceptual is actually not a dichotomy, right? Because our action is defined by, are determined by what we think, and virtue is a kind of wisdom. So when we're transforming our knowledge, we're transforming our character, we're changing how we act um, at the same time. Yeah, that's a key um, point. I suppose you can almost understand, you've laid this out in a way that shows, like, you know, philosophy, yeah, philosophy is a way of life, the Socratic method, virtue as a kind of knowledge. What, 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 these all share in common, this focus on thought, the argument that you can change how you think, and because of that, you can come to acquire knowledge, and by doing so, you can act more virtuously. So so stoic. Yeah, so stoic. <laughs> what is <laughs> uh, so so stoic? Um, the fourth similarity here, keeping keeping the similarity train going, we have the importance of self knowledge as one of Socrates' key arguments. So Socrates. There's a lot of different ways you can interpret this. It's a pretty famous claim, but Socrates was told by the Oracle of Delphi that he was you know, the wisest person in Athens. And then Socrates, you know, whether he's playing this up for the crowd, whether he's making a bit of a story about it, or whether he gen- genuinely means this, says, well, I was so surprised to hear that. So I tried to figure out why would I be the wisest person? Because I don't think I'm very wise. Uh, why would the Oracle ever say that about me? And then he goes around talking to people and he sees that they're all kind of ignorant, but they're oblivious to their own ignorance. And he concludes, well, I must be the wisest person because I know one thing. I at least know that I know nothing. I at least have uh, self-knowledge about my own ignorance. And Socrates' lesson here, I think, is that there is different kinds of ignorance. So we, I already framed and we already talked about it above, you know, if wisdom is good, ignorance is bad. Well, there's different kinds of ignorance, and you can have a kind of factual ignorance. I don't know if you want to call it that, but a factual ignorance, an example, I don't know how to drive a standard car. And you can have self-ignorance, which is, I think I know how to drive a standard car when I don't. That's a kind of self-ignorance. It's a false belief about yourself. And you see how, I don't know how to drive standard, and I could get around my life totally fine doing that. But if I 
had self-ignorance about that, if I didn't understand my own limitations, well, then there would be some problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would, you know, crash a car, more likely just go very slowly. I think that's how standards work and get honked at and get kind of stuck out in the middle of the road. So there, there, there's facts about the world and then there's facts about yourself. And being ignorant or mistaken about facts about yourself is really dangerous, is one of Socrates' key points here, I think. And that we want to be extra careful about self-deception and self-ignorance. So the, the, the practical advice here is to really understand your limits, understand your room for improvement. And I don't think you should be discouraged by this, but you should, I think, instead frame it in the positive ways, which is to take pride in self-knowledge, even in your weaknesses. So don't say, well, I'm going to work on really understanding all the things I'm bad at because I'm bad at things. Say, well, no, I'm going to cultivate this virtue of self-knowledge. And cultivating this virtue of self-knowledge includes understanding uh, myself, my strengths, my limitations, how I really exist in the world. And that's something that I know Epictetus stresses a lot, especially in understanding our roles. Mm-hmm. He talks about understanding what we were made to do, which is to say understanding you know, what we're good at, what we're talented at, what we like to do. Um, not defining ourselves by other people's expectations of us either not defining ourselves by society's expectations, but really understanding ourselves um, and, and using that to guide our actions. And I, I think also in, in Stoicism, that can be one of the biggest impediments to progression is an honest assessment. We, we hear today, like uh, Ryan Holiday has popularized you know, this, this idea of ego is the enemy. But I don't think ego... We, we've talked in a previous episode, Caleb, I'm kind of coming to this idea in, in real time. We've talked in, in a previous episode about kind of self-pride, self-respect. I don't think ego is actually a problem in terms of holding yourself to a high standard. I think that's actually a very stoic thing. Mm-hmm. Epictetus talks about, you know, you have a piece of the divine in you. Is that ego? No. To Epictetus, that's a fact. I think what's, what's the issue is self-deception. That is where the ego becomes the enemy, if you want to call it ego. And that's something that comes straight through Socrates. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I suppose that's related to this debate around humility. You know, should one be humble in the sense of around others with yourself, sort of you know, hiding your power level would be the I mean, perhaps <laughs> a modern way to put it. You know, being able to I suppose, in social context when you're thinking about yourself, just not puffing yourself up too much or being prideful. And Aristotle thought this was stupid and not a good vice. He thought you you should pr- present yourself just as good as you are or something like this generally you shouldn't be humble you shouldn't downplay who you are but of course you also shouldn't take false pride in things you are not and probably the stoics are relatively close to aristotle's view though maybe in social situations they might lean a little bit more towards you know quietism not drawing attention to oneself that sort of thing um but i think you have that idea of recognizing how good you are is useful because it can show you what to work on next, but also you can take adequate pride in you know, the pro- progress you've made so far. I think in the, the context of games or sports, you have lines like, the best poker players know exactly how good they are. And the thought is that you know, they can evaluate different tables, see, okay, 
lots of maybe amateurs are over here. If I go over to that table, I'll do relatively well. If I look at that other table, I see, you know, lots of lots of veterans. If I go over there, those people are just way better than I am and I'm going to get uh, get completely toasted. And I, I think there's something to that where you're just thinking about uh, an important virtue is, you know, knowing how good you are in different practical domains, different moral domains, and, you know, being, being realistic about that. That's that pursuit of, of knowledge, even if doing so is uncomfortable. If... Yeah. I think the ultimate irony to this, I mean, your poker example is a good example. We, we, if I, if I can I psychoanalyze myself, let's take something like jujitsu, which is a skill that I've been developing for a long time. I want to be good at jujitsu. I value being good at jujitsu. So I start, I, it hurts my feelings if I think I'm not good at it. I'm like, I, I want to think of myself, I'm great at this. But ironically, if you can remove that, you will actually get better faster, right? So that's that. That's the that's the weird thing that's like so hard to balance. You know, I want to be a good poker player. I want to do well in this tournament. But doing that involves understanding the ways in which I'm bad at it. So it, it just it's just looking in the face, something that that is is difficult to look in the face because it it you're not living up to what, the kind of person you want to be, at least not in that moment, which is the great poker player, which is the great athlete or something like that. And something I'm really, really working on in my life is, is this idea of self-knowledge, not viewing myself as the person I want to be, but viewing myself accurately as the person I currently am with these, this aspirational goal. Um, it's really difficult though. I struggle with it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. Um, cool. And now, so we, we've hit on uh, a lot and now to the final similarity between Socrates and the Stoics, uh, I have is the importance of character. It's kind of connected to this idea of virtue as a kind of knowledge, but really I would say character as the ultimate good. It, it derives from virtue as the only, no as, as a kind of knowledge, but it, it's, it's connected to that. Uh, it's not this exact same. So in Plato's uh, Gorgias, Socrates has a line here um, where an uh, interlocutor asks him, would you then wish to suffer injustice rather than do it? And Socrates says, for my part, I would wish neither. But if I were forced to choose between suffering injustice and doing it, I would choose to suffer. And again, this sounds like something you might expect to hear straight from Marcus Aurelius. Socrates's point here, so so he, so he's saying, look, is it better to have somebody punch you or to punch somebody else who doesn't deserve it? Better to be punched when you don't deserve it or to punch somebody else when they don't deserve it? And Socrates says, I would rather be punched. And the Greeks are like, that's silly, Socrates. <laughs> Getting punched hurts. That's a bad thing to have happen to you. And la, yeah, like, I'm sorry for that guy. Like, that's too bad for them. But, um, if it has to happen to somebody, better it happen to somebody else. And Socrates doesn't make a kind of, I would say, a merciful argument. Socrates is not making the argument here, well, I, my suffering is less important than them, so better I get punched, punched in the face than them. Socrates is actually making a selfish argument here and saying, when I punch somebody that doesn't deserve it, I suffer greatly because I have harmed my own character. Whereas when someone punches me, I suffer relatively minorly. I get a bruise on my face. I have some pain for a bit of time. Maybe at worst, I lose a tooth. Mm -hmm. But better to lose a tooth 
than to be the kind of person that punches people when they don't deserve it. Because that's somebody who's a coward. That's somebody who doesn't understand justice uh, and these kinds of things. And so what Socrates is doing there is he's placing, he's placing character as the most important thing in the hierarchy of our life and the hierarchy of what makes a good life. And so to say, you know, would I take a punch to the face or compromise my character? Well, I will take a punch to the face. And, you know, that's a, that's a silly example and you can use whatever you like, but the, but the idea there is um, if, if our character is the most important thing, then it's better to preserve it, even if it means external failure or external difficulty, than to, you know, take advantage of somebody else or, or do something like this. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if Socrates's full claim is that physical or reputational damage doesn't matter at all. Like the Stoics would go that far and they would say, well, you know, getting punched in the face is an indifferent, it's not preferable, but it doesn't connect with good or bad. I don't know if Socrates is going that far, but he's certainly saying you should never compromise your character in in exchange for any sort of, I guess, external success or prevention of external harm. I think that's the way of putting it. Um, he almost puts it at indifferent status, right? Almost practically, it ends up looking really similar to what the Stoics would say here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a really cool connection. Yeah, absolutely. I do think this is the one where he almost gets to the full Stoic picture, but doesn't exactly, especially in the Gorgias. Um, I th- other Greco-Roman philosophers, I think, would also agree that one should not sacrifice virtue for the sake of some external gain, even if they think externals do matter to some extent. I think Aristotle would subscribe to something, something like that. Um, even if he thinks in order to be happy, you need certain things to go right for you. So, but I think that is a, a central point that Socrates argues for, and it's not one that is you know, widely internalized in our culture today. Yeah, yeah, it's not really like Socrates is pushing too much back on Aristotle here, or what Aristotle would say, but certainly, I guess, pushing back on common intuition or common cultural norms um you know would you be the better would it better you you be the robber to get robbed you know better you to be the unjust person in the position of power than than the weak person being harmed and i i think he's he's going against some athenian uh cultural norms by saying well it's better to be the 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 person that's harmed in that context because i care about something outside of that, which is that virtue. Another interesting point where this pops up in Socrates, also uh, Plato, but Socrates is the one telling the story, is the Ring of Gyges in Plato's Republic. And that's this example of this, almost like a Lord of the Rings ring. So they, they, they talk about this ring, you put it on, you, get, you turn invisible. And Socrates' question is, if you get this ring, what should you do? Should you go about stealing, harming people, getting revenge on those you don't like? indulging in whatever pleasures you want because nobody can catch you. You know, there's no infrared cameras at this time. If you were invisible, you'd be, be, you'd be escaping every situation. You basically have a, a lot of power, right? And whenever I teach that concept, or I used to teach it to undergrads or in philosophy seminars, people would always think about this as a question of like, what would you do? 
well, of course I wouldn't go and steal and rob. And it's really important to say Socrates' question is not that. It's what should you do? You know, are we only going about, am I only not harming people, being powerful, indulging in my will? Uh, am I only not doing that because I'm weak? And if I did have power, should I do it? Kind of like this Nietzschean argument, right? I, am, I, am I only like dampening my will to power because the physical world, I'm not a billionaire, I'm not famous, I can't, mm -hmm. can't actually get the things I want, so I tell myself, oh, I don't actually want them. But if you had that power, should you actually go and get them and, and, and realize, well, a lot of these rules you make for yourself are, um, they're just rules you made up to justify your lack of power. But Socrates is saying, no, that's not the case. You should not do it. And not because you care about other people. Again, in your own self-interest, you should not use the ring of Gyges to engage in your desires, even at the harm of others, because you would make yourself, you would, in, you would harm your characters. Basically, the, the argument of the rest of the Republic is an argument in favor of that. You would, it's a spoiler for the Republic, um, you should not do bad things if you get a special ring. Um, because you'd be turning yourself into a kind of tyrant, Plato argues. You'd be um, feeding these actually harmful desires that would take control of you, or you'd be perverting your character. So the argument is that if you, if you indulge in your desires with absolute power, it's actually a kind of self-harm. But it's the same kind of argument here, where um, just this, this importance, the central importance of virtue and character over achieving these external goods. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's a, I like that framing of it's, he's not merely asking what would you do, but what should you do, of course, in, in a situation like that. And then even further, like what are you doing now uh, in your life? Like either evading, getting away with things where, where you can, evading responsibility by telling stories about, hmm. uh, about you know, your lack of power or what have you. And, it's, and you can read that as a, a, a proper ethical challenge. Cool. So those are my five similarities. Philosophy as a way of life, um, the Socratic method as a tool, virtue as a kind of knowledge, the importance of self-knowledge, so not self not deceiving yourself, and the importance of character, that idea that it's better to um, suffer injustice than to commit injustice because what matters is your character. Um, anything to add to those similarities before we get into some differences? I think that's a, a reasonable a reasonable way, way to think about it, especially this, this focus on you know, philosophy as a way of life. You know, what do we have? We have tools for better thinking. Those tools are oriented towards knowledge and by thinking better, by pursuing knowledge, we shape our character to, to the best extent that we can with, while recognizing our limits and the limits of our knowledge, both sort of, I suppose, in a persistent way, you know, recognizing that there are some facts we cannot change, death being a common stoic theme. Uh, we all will die, but also using that realization um, that one lacks knowledge to change and realize that you know maybe there are certain things that can come to know that limits that can be broken mm -hmm. as it were yeah so i think that's a, a solid list cool so in terms of differences i'm going to go through this a bit faster but i think these are worth calling out because we kind of framed this conversation so far socrates is this famous philosopher says all these brilliant things Zeno reads Xenophon's memorabilia, found Stoicism, boom, you have this direct line. But I, I think there are some actual important differences. 
you know, the Stoics didn't do 500 years of philosophy to not differentiate themselves a little bit. And I want to go through some of those now. So first is that Socrates probably doesn't provide a fully systematized philosophy, or if he did, we certainly don't have it. Um, it's not like Stoicism that was meant to be a complete explanation for everything, where you have physics, logic, ethics, this, this, kind of, this complete worldview. Um, Socrates had some ethical claims, possibly some metaphysical claims about our soul and what happens when we die, but it was really a, an, an ethically oriented philosophy and probably not a mutually consistent or totally coherent one because it, it wasn't a system. It wasn't, he wasn't a founder of a school that other people, um, that he, he didn't write, write down his doctrines to make sure they were mutually you know, reinforcing. So that's something to keep in mind. So I think Socrates is a brilliant person to learn from, but if you're looking for a complete system, you can go find that in, in the Stoics, or at least the Stoics attempted to do that. You can't find it in Socrates. Um, the second difference is that there's a lot more aggression and focus on engaging with non-philosophers. I, I use the word aggression because I think Socrates intentionally, you know, he kind of plays the fool sometimes, but he intentionally engages with people that are getting upset, intentionally engaging with people that are frustrating. He's certainly disagreeable. Not a, if not aggressive, certainly disagreeable and doesn't care if he's making you upset all the time. The Stoics, instead, they tend to stick to their own. They tend to engage with students or from those who come actively seeking their knowledge. They're not bugging people on the street. They're not being the gadfly um, that Socrates was. Um, third, Socrates was more of an outsider. I really think there's kind of a cynic bend to his philosophy. Marcus and Seneca, these, these were insiders. These were people who, by all accounts, were incredibly successful famous, popular, politically savvy. Um, Socrates, at least older Socrates, at least the Socrates of the Apology and the Socrates of the Platonic Dialogues, maybe was, certainly wasn't living on the outskirts of society, was, was, a, was a citizen, was likely wealthy, was politically connected, but um, certainly is rubbing people the wrong way. When Marcus talks about waking up in the morning and dealing with difficult people and kind of aligning himself to deal with them in a politically savvy way. I don't think this is what Socrates is saying. Mm -hmm. um, the, the last one, I think, is that Socrates has m potentially more of a skeptic bent. So no Stoic would say, I know that I know nothing. I took that quote and I said, oh, Socrates is talking about self-deception. But if you take that quote literally... He's talking about not knowing anything, except one thing, <laughs> right? Um, so not just self-deception, but every kind of deception. I don't know, there's a pot and pan in front of me. You know, that, that, that kind of, si I don't live in the matrix, these kind of simple, these kind of simple claims. Um, so the Stoics would say that many of us are ignorant, um, but the Stoics are pretty confident about most physical claims, like most claims about our knowledge about the physical world. And they think we, they think they have an answer to ethical claims. They just think most of us don't believe it yet or haven't internalized it yet. So the Stoics think they know things. You just got to be careful not to be deceived. So if we take Socrates' claim, I know that I know nothing, literally, you're getting actually a much more skeptic argument than the Stoics give us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any yeah. reflection on those? Yeah. So if I were to summarize those, I'd say at the level of theory, Socrates is not a systematic philosopher you know he didn't write down 
any of his works, his students, uh, you know, Plato and Xenophon have their differences. And then Plato, who we have the most works from, there are different Socrates, as you explained in the very beginning. Um, and then we have this idea that in terms of practice, he's more disagreeable. He doesn't have the sort of the stoic approach of, you know, building a school, attracting students. And then, you know, Epictetus counsels treat non-Stoics in a con conventional way, generally. And that's a, that's a general rule of thumb. Socrates doesn't have that. And then these last two points, I think, are, are, are sort of, I think one should remember that different schools of philosophy took different lessons from Socrates. So one way to understand the cynics, skeptics, and the Stoics is as focusing or highlighting different aspects of Socrates, the philosopher. On the Stoics, you have knowledge, ideas about a virtue. The cynics really go with the outsider status of Socrates and thinking of that role of a gadfly. I think Diogenes is even more of a outsider than Socrates is. Um, and then, of course, you have the, the skeptic focusing on the questioning attitude of Socrates and maximizing that into a completely skeptical skeptical attitude. The, the last one I would add in terms of differences is there's there are issues, I think, this is related to the first one where Socrates is not a systematic philosopher, but there are always other readings of what Socrates said. And one reason the dialogues of Plato, Xenophon have persisted so long is that they sort of call you to do philosophy with Socrates. And one upshot of that is it's not an explanation of a complete systematic philosophy of life. And indeed, many people throughout uh, history have come to different readings about what Socrates has said, whether he's being literal, ironic, or there's some esoteric reading that is more plausible to a given dialogue. And I think that's part of what it is to read philosophy with Socrates is that, you know, that, that call to do philosophy with him, with his students, and it's less dogmatic, not dogmatic in the negative sense, but you're called call to engage in activity as opposed to, you know, what many Stoic teachers might focus on. Of course, there's activity, but it's also essential to understand the key techniques, key tenets of the, the Stoic view. So that, that might be one difference I, I would add, or at least extend to, to this list. Yeah, the metaphor I was thinking of when you were talking, Caleb, was you know, if you're a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. And if you read Socrates as a Stoic, you're going to find, wow, there's a lot in common here. And there is a lot in common here. But the skeptic would say the same thing. The cynic would say the same thing. Probably the modern Buddhist would say the same thing. So there is, I, I haven't heard it put that way, but I think that's beautiful. There's an ambiguity to Socrates' writing that leads to the, or uh, our representations of Socrates, that leads to this kind of permanent well to go back to because it encourages, it doesn't end with an answer, it ends with a question. And that encourages uh, the action of philosophy, as you put it. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um... Maybe in some future episodes, we'll dive into some of these dialogues and see if we can, we can bring that out somewhere. Yeah, we're going to go deep. Yeah, <laughs> um, awesome. So 
anything else you wanted to add? Well, there's always so much more to add on this. Like some of the, I think the point about outsiders is really interesting. And I, th- I do think we should do another conversation. I think Socrates brings up that question of, you know, what's the role of outsiders, insiders generally? And then was he an outsider? Was he an insider who, you know, was he an outsider always challenging Athenian society? Or was he an insider who lost? And those, I think those questions are, can be hmm. uh, worth, worth thinking through. So I think, I think people, I hope listening to this, you've got a good sense of why the Stoics took Socrates so seriously as a thinker. We probably could have spent a little bit more time on his biography because that probably matters as well in terms of you know who he was, his military experience, athletic experience, who he was in the community, and so on. Uh, but uh, you know we've only we're a limited limited podcast with limited means, so uh, maybe, <laughs> there's only well, so much go, time. Yeah, there's so right. much Socrates to talk about. I think one question I'll leave for those listening and for you, Caleb, and for myself is this idea of. Do we think as modern Stoics that we've an obligation to be more like a gadfly? Um, have we lost that cynic edge that Socrates had, that you know, bringing philosophy to the people, whether they like it or not? And is that for better or worse, that, that willingness to engage, that willingness to meet non-philosophers where they're at, even if it makes them uncomfortable? I guess that's the gadfly part. I think the Stoics are all for philosophical, practical conversations. I, I think that we certainly, certainly myself, and I think most of the people in the Stoicism community don't have that kind of antagonistic or disagreeable edge in terms of seeing it as a voc- maybe a, you know, an obligation or divine calling, as Socrates would say. I don't think I have a divine calling, but maybe there's some, maybe there's some reason for the modern Stoics to, I don't know, try to share a bit more intensely. Mm. Excellent. Awesome. Thanks for putting this together. Great. Thanks, Kim. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletter.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search STOA in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.